0: Please turn to Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While you're turning, it was Palm Sunday, March 30th, A.D. 33, the triumphal entry. The crowds were wildly proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. It was a happy time. It was a triumphant time. Surely the kingdom of God was at hand. Surely surely God's kingdom was about to break out. The Romans would be driven away, and Israel would be placed at the head of all the nations. Surely that was about to happen. And then, as he was nearing Jerusalem, Jesus did a very strange thing. It says in Luke chapter 19, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What a strange thing to say at a moment of triumph. And yet within a week, Jesus was crucified. How could they have known? He condemned them because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. But how could they have known? Hmm. And then Jesus did other strange things too. Like he was fond of saying, my hour is not yet come. Or he'd heal somebody and he'd say, don't tell anybody. You ever, <laughs> who's ever seen an evangelist who'd heal somebody and then say, don't tell anybody? <laughs> yeah, but Jesus did that. <clears throat> it was the strangest way of publicizing yourself. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. My time has not yet come. Until this day, Sunday, March 30th, AD 33, Then Jesus said, if these didn't praise me, the stones would cry out. What happened? Well, today we're going to find out. This passage answers so many of the questions we might ask. There's so many things in in the Bible that without this passage, without these short seven verses, don't make sense. That this explains. So this is like one of the key points in Bible prophecy these little seven verse verses right here are like the capstone on a mighty pyramid it comes to a point, it's not much at the point But it holds everything together. It really does. So today we're going to be looking at one of the key passages in Scripture for understanding prophecy. We're now in the part of Daniel that has a particular message for Israel. That's why he switched back to Hebrew from Aramaic. And Daniel's been studying the Scriptures, as we noted last week, and he's noticed that the time of the exile's end must be drawing near. Therefore he makes the future the special object of his prayer. In answer, God sent him, the angel Gabriel, with a message. And that's where we pick up today in verse 20. With God's answer. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction (laughs) and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel's confession and prayer, as we saw in verses 3 through 19 last week, was a beautiful prayer of intercession in which Daniel identified with his sin and the sin of of his people. Uh, Even though he was an exceptionally righteous person, the prophet Ezekiel even said that Daniel's righteous, Uh, one of the most righteous men he'd ever known. But he identified with Israel. He confessed his sin and being part of the nation that sinned. He didn't consider himself aloof in that regard. And he presented his prayer for the holy mountain of God. Well, his prayer and his intercession was interrupted. You ever have a divine interruption? You're trucking along in a religious manner and God just stops you, you know? (laughs) And uh, that was Daniel. Daniel got interrupted by an angel. Now, you know, it's okay with me if I remember praying and I get interrupted by an angel. I will not object to that i will not say you. Just wait just, just a second, Gabriel. I'm not finished. Yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel got interrupted while he was presenting. Literally, the word presenting means casting or causing to fall. He was casting his prayer requests. Um, just like Peter wrote, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The Hebrew word translated supplication here means a request for favor, for grace a request for grace in essence is what it's saying and Daniel wasn't seeking justice he wasn't saying oh we Israelites we are so good you know God you owe us you know, so answer my prayer that isn't it he was, he was asking for grace he was asking for that which he and his nation did not deserve They deserved good from God's hand, and their rebellion had earned them something entirely different. They'd had enough justice. They didn't want any more of that. They wanted grace. So while Daniel's praying, the angel Gabriel interrupts. God's answer was to send Gabriel, whom Daniel had seen in the previous vision, and explain things to him. Because Daniel was probably confused after chapter 8. He knew the exile was drawing to a close, and yet chapter 8 sounded like there were hard times ahead because it had predicted the, uh, the persecution by Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Daniel was manifestly confused by that. Well, which is it? Or is, the, is the bad time ending, or is it going to come again, or what's happening? Daniel called Gabriel a man, He's definitely not a man, he's definitely an angel, but he had assumed human form. His angels are spiritual beings, so without assuming human form, we wouldn't see them. So that's why he called him a man. We have the same sort of thing whenever um, Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Uh, Then immediately after he vanished out of their sight, there were two men in shining apparel there. Well, those were angels. But they had assumed human form, so they called them men. Same story when they went to the empty tomb. Again, they saw saw two men, but they weren't just men. So they were a little bit more than that. They were angels. Um, So, the Hebrew phrase translated came to me in my extreme weariness. It's a little difficult to translate. Um, Most translations, the vast majority of them, translated as being caused to fly swiftly. Um, that 's or something similar to that, the vast majority of them there 's only a few that have as a matter of fact, I can only find five that have in my extreme weariness, and so uh, with extreme regret because I love the New American standard translation, I, I disagree with it here um, that it probably should be being caused to fly swiftly like the King James has. Uh, it's probably something similar to that would be right. The um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the verb uh, that it translates this into definitely means to fly. Um, so we're talking about now does that mean that gabriel had wings by the way okay uh, no that's that's a, an artistic convention you know that we have from the renaissance little chubby angels with wings um uh, gabriel first of all scared people he was not a little chubby guy um you know he always has to say don't fear don't be afraid <laughs> okay so i i can only imagine that he was a bit imposing uh but you can fly without having wings missiles do uh bullets do, arrows don't have wings, you know. You don't have to have wings to fly. And what he's saying, though, is when Gabriel came, he came like a shot, like a bolt of lightning. You know, he flew swiftly. Daniel noted also that he arrived about the time of the evening offering. Now, there's two things about this. One, this kind of little small detail, like I mentioned in the Gospels often, is not the sort of thing you would have if somebody sat down and made this up. Why would you do that? Why would it matter what time of day he arrives? You know, this is, the, this is the stuff of eyewitness testimony when you have little details like this. But also, it is about the time of the evening offering. The evening offering had taken place in Israel between 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But the Babylonians had destroyed the temple in 586 B.C., 47 years ago from Daniel's standpoint. There had been no temple. There had been no evening offering for 47 years. Nevertheless, for Daniel, it was the time of the evening offering. I think that that says a beautiful thing about Daniel's heart, you know. He can take the Israeli out of Israel, but you can't take Israel out of the Israeli. You know, I mean, he's still in Jerusalem. He's still got a temple in his head, you know. And it was the time of the evening offering. The angel Gabriel announced that his purpose was to give Daniel insight and understanding. This, I think, has application, actually, for all of us. When you're stuck on something and don't understand it, how often do we go to God and say, God, I need help? You know, let God tutor you. <laughs> you know? I mean, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is a key component to understanding the Word, to understanding life. Let us, you know, let's go to God and seek to understand. You know, say, God, I don't, I don't understand this. Please explain it to me. Now, there's two possibilities. God may explain it to you. I think a lot more than if we don't ask. And then sometimes he may say, you know, you're not ready for that one yet. Um, <laughs> there, there's a, uh, a little girl at the school that, uh, that I teach at who is, oh, gee, what is she? I think she is a sixth grader, I think, maybe fifth. Uh, uh, no, um, no, that's all right. Anyway, but but uh, she was always coming to me and wanting to uh, study calculus or physics. She hasn't mastered arithmetic yet, but she wants to. You know, now you got to admire the the go-getter attitude. Uh, you know, but she's not ready for it yet. So I think sometimes God may say to us, you know, you can't handle this one yet. Yeah, you know, you're not going to understand this one yet. But it's worth asking. It's worth asking. The answer to Daniel's prayer then, note that it began as soon as he began to pray. God responded right away. Now, there was a brief delay for the transition, for the transit of the angel. But Daniel got results from God. Why? Because it says he was a special person to God. God, had, God and Daniel had a hotline because of who Daniel was. The Hebrew word translated highly esteemed here means a precious treasure. The angel Gabriel said, Daniel, you're a precious treasure. God thinks you're a jewel. Yeah. You're, uh, one translation has, you're of great value in God's sight. Why did God da- value Daniel so much? Because Daniel's outlook, as we saw in his prayer, his concern was for the glory of God, for the reputation of God. He didn't go to, to God to twist God's arm to get his will instead of God's will. His concern was to line up with God's will and see that it was done, to the glory of God. I, I submit, men and women, that God is thrilled to answer prayers with that kind of attitude behind him. And God is much, much more desirous of blessing us than we are able to receive it. The problem is our, on our end, not on his. So God, you know, and said, Daniel, you're highly esteemed. So the angel presents then in... Actually, only four more verses, 24, 25, 26, 27, in four verses, this, key, this capstone to biblical prophecy. He starts off, verse 24, "...seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Gabriel explained that 70 weeks, and I put that in quotes, have been decreed for Israel and for Jerusalem. So the first concern we have is, what's the nature of these weeks? Well, the Hebrew phrase translated 70 weeks, Shavuim Shavim, is literally 77s. Okay? That's a little enigmatic, if somebody said to you, 77s from now... You know, this is going to happen. Well, you might go, sevens of what? Right? And that would be a good question. As the chapter began, what was Daniel thinking about? He was thinking about the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had predicted before he went into exile. Okay? 70 years. Now, God had commanded Israel to allow the land to rest uncultivated every seventh year. That was called the sabbatical year. It's in uh, Leviticus 25, for instance. During the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So we had the Sabbath every week, seventh day, you know, with Shabbat, the Sabbath. And then we had a Shabbat of years every seventh year. You didn't plant your land. Now, that did two things. One, it's good for the land because you can over-farm and all the nutrients go out of the soil. We know that now. Uh, They didn't then. God knew it. They didn't. (laughs) But on the other hand, also, you had to have faith in year six that God was going to give you enough to make it through year seven. It took faith to obey the Sabbath law. Well, he warned them, too. He said, if you disobeyed, then the land, according to Leviticus 26, the land will enjoy its sab- Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its sabbath. So it's as if God said we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can let the land rest every seven years, or you can get kicked out of the land, and the land will rest while you're gone. Okay, one way or the other. Well, that's exactly what happened. 2 Chronicles, when it's talking about that 70-year captivity, says in 2 Chronicles 26 that that happened to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, there's Jeremiah's prophecy again, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. We think in decades, we think in 10-year chunks, Israel thought in 7-year chunks. Okay? There's even a technical phrase for it, it's not Hebrew, but a heptad. You know, so we think decades, they think heptads. And be you a know, matter of fact, a seven, 7, there's another cycle of 7 years times 7 that was 49 years, that was the Jubilee year. If you were a slave, that was really good news, or if you were in debt, that was good news. Deaths were canceled, slaves were freed. So, by the way, anybody says, well, the Old Testament was terrible. They had slavery back then. No, they really had indentured servant- servanthood because you got set free periodically. Okay? So it's not, uh, it's not quite the same thing as the American South was, just FYI. Okay, but we think in decades, they think in sevens. Okay? Now, since 70 years of exile was required of Israel, then how long were they breaking the sabbatical year for? 70 times 7, 490 years, right? Make sense? You're in trouble for 70 years, you're going to be kicked out of the country because the land needs to rest, okay? There And therefore, that means 70 times 7, or 490 years, you hadn't been giving it at Sabbaths, okay? That had, been, that had been universally disobeyed. Now, in chapter 10... When Daniel wishes to express the ordinary week, he says, uh, three three weeks." He says, "Shaloshah shabuim yamin." Literally, that's three sevens of days. Okay. Now, why did he feel constrained to say that? Well, because he hadn't been talking about sevens of days before, had he? So, the translation "week" is not re- is a little weak, if you'll excuse the pun. Uh, The the New International Version, I thought, did pretty good. They said seventy sevens are decreed for your people. Um, The uh, New Living Translation said a period of seventy sets of seven. Or uh, the God's Word Translation, seventy sets of seven time periods. Or the Revised Standard even did better here, seventy weeks of years. Uh, it's not often I say something nice about the revised standard but this is one time where I would they did good so probably the best though is the the new international the 77's are decreed that is very literal now had it been some other time period let's look at this if it had been 490 days that's a little more than a year okay did that accomplish all those things that he said they were going to accomplish like for instance where's the everlasting righteousness haven't seen that yet have you yeah, I haven't. <laughs> doesn't look like it's there. Uh, did it get there in 490 weeks? No, still not here. Did it get there in 490 months? No. So it doesn't work with anything other, other than maybe years. Okay, and we'll have to look at that closer. Okay. So, Gabriel then stated that six things were going to be accomplished during that time period. That 490 years was going to see six things done. The first three deal with sin, and the last three with the establishment of the kingdom of God and righteousness. First of all, this period would finish the transgression. The Hebrew word translated transgression here really means rebellion, revolt. It's um, that's, that's been translated, it would put an end to rebellion. Well, Israel's rebellion will end at Christ's second coming. That's when they're all going to repent, according to Zechariah. That's when, according to Paul in Romans 11, 26, and 27, all Israel will be saved. That's when all Jews become Messianic Jews. What a day. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) So, that's going to happen, the first thing. The second thing this is going to accomplish is it's going to make an end of sin, or put an end to sin, as the New International says. This is probably God's final judgment on sin. We're going to have the end of sin in the world. What a world that would be. A world with no sin. Can you imagine See, all the people you think you like right now are going to be so much easier to get along with. Because <laughs> they won't have any sin. you know. And all the things that you're afraid of right now aren't going to be there. There won't be anything to be afraid of. So um, it's going to put an end to sin. Third, that period's going to make atonement for iniquity. Oh, well, who did that? Jesus Christ, dying on the cross is one of the things that's going to be accomplished in there. Fourth, it's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Righteousness is the essential character, according to Jeremiah 23, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom based on righteousness. Fifth, it's going to seal up vision and prophecy. Uh, that's been translated, I think, a little clearer. Um, actually by a Jewish translation, to see the prophetic vision ratified. Or uh, the new, uh, the NLT has to confirm the prophetic vision. Okay, with the establishment of the kingdom of God, when we have got all the way down to the new heavens and the new earth, is there any more biblical prophecy left to be fulfilled? It's all been done. That's it. It's all done. And we go on into eternity. So it's going to seal the vision and prophecy. And finally, this period is going to anoint the holy place. Now, the phrase there for holy place, the most holy place, rather, uh, kadosh kadoshim, generally refers to the holy of holies. And so... um, some take this, and I think with, you know, with reason, to refer to the Holy of Holies, the innermost part, the inner sanctum of the millennial temple. There will be a temple, according to Ezekiel, during the, the thousand-year period that begins the kingdom of God. And then we know from John, from Revelation, that at the end there won't be a temple because God himself will be the temple in the center of the, uh, of the New Jerusalem. Now, so it could be referring to that. On the other hand, if you look in your New American Standard and most other translations, the word place is italicized. Okay. When you see an italicized word, that means the translator stuck it there to make things read better, but it isn't in the original text. There is no word place there. Okay, uh, and um, so the NIV has simply to anoint the most holy. Most holy what? Well, another translation, God's Word translation, has to anoint the most holy one. Okay, that would be Jesus. Okay. Now I, I think this may this may be another one where the difference of opinion among Bible scholars probably isn't horribly significant because what do we see happening as, as I mentioned you know there there is a temple that will be rebuilt probably during the tribulation and then desecrated by Antichrist and there's going to be a temple a new temple during the first thousand years of the kingdom of God but then the New Jerusalem comes down we have a new heavens a new earth and God himself dwells there and there isn't a need for a temple because he's there Uh, so ultimately Jesus is the temple and that's what he that's why he told him when he uh, cleansed the temple the first time in John chapter 2 destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days so I wish we had video instead of just the words because I'm pretty sure Jesus said this temple. Yeah, <laughs> when he said that. But anyway, okay, so this is divided then from, we have the overview in verse, in verse 24, and then we have three, three different sections uh, for each of the three verses following. So the first section is the starting point to the Messiah. And that's in verse 25. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and tell Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Um, by the way, mo- the word that is uh, translated molt there, we tend to think of English castles with crocodiles and water in the, in the thing around the castle. Uh, there's, all, there's such a thing as a dry ditch also. I think it's called a glacis is the, correct, is the archaeological term. But it's where you have a wall and you dig a ditch in front of it, and it makes it harder on people attacking you. Because they've got to go down and up, you know. So you can have a moat without having water. I just, you know, in case anybody's going, well, Jerusalem doesn't have any water around it. Yeah, that's that's true. It doesn't. But you can still have a moat of sorts. Okay. Um, Augustine observed about this that Daniel, in in his work, the City of God, he said Daniel even defined the time when Christ was to come and suffer by the exact date. It would take too long to show this by computation, and it's been done often by others before. For us, uh, however, I will blithely ignore Augustine's warning and attempt this anyway. Uh, so I'm going to try to explain how this all works because it is an incredibly precise um, um, prophecy. I was tempted to bring my TI-89 calculator so I could see, see, uh, but you can check the you can check the figures, download the thing, and do the math. It works. Um, the starting point of the 490 years. Then, as they said, was a decree, because Daniel's told you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's our starting point, right? Um, there's, from that starting point, there are 490 years. Okay, so the starting point of that 490 years. Now, four decrees have been suggested first one that's been suggested is Cyrus, uh, 538 B.C. Uh, we have that in Ezra and in 2 Chronicles. Cyrus decreed that the temple be rebuilt. Ah, but he didn't decree that the city be rebuilt. Okay, so that one doesn't fit, does it? Then we have Darius' decree in 519 B.C. confirming Cyrus's decree from earlier. But that, again, was talking about the uh, the temple, not the city. Okay? Daniel's prophecy is about the city. Then we have Artaxerxes' first decree. And it came about because in Ezra 7, uh, the Israelis decided they were going to take it on themselves to start building the wall. Well, some of, the people, some of their political opponents wrote a letter back to Artaxerxes, the, the Persian emperor, and said, hey, these people are starting to rebuild their wall. Well, that is rebuilding your defenses in that day. And they'll rebel if they get that wall rebuilt. Okay? And Artaxerxes then issued a decree that until he would rule later on it, they were to stop building the wall. And they did okay so it started but it stopped now an interesting thing about Persian law okay is remember from chapter 6 of Daniel the law of the Medes and Persians doesn't change so you have to be careful how you word a decree because you're going to be stuck with it okay I'm really really glad we don't have that system I don't think it was the wisest of systems but nonetheless that's how their culture worked it gave them a lot of stability I guess Um, the thing is then, had any of those earlier decrees also said you can rebuild the city, Artaxerxes could not have reversed it under his own law. The king was subject to the law, and he could not have reversed that. So, what, the fact that he said, hey, stop building, he left himself a loophole until I say so, uh, the fact that he did that meant that none of those earlier decrees could have authorized the rebuilding of the city. Does that make sense? Okay. So, that brings us down to the fourth and the last one mentioned in Scripture, and that was in 444 BC, the same Artaxerxes, in his 20th year, authorized the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and that's found in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, we don't know the exact date, but there is a very good chance because of the time of month such things were usually issued that the, that the date was March 5th, but we don't actually have that preserved for us. But it, it's quite likely. Um, March 5th, 444 B.C. then was that decree. That's the only one that fulfills the condition of rebuilding Jerusalem. It's like God had this giant stopwatch. And when that decree is issued, the thumb goes down and it starts going tick, 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 tick. And it's counting down on 490 years. Now, 69 sevens were to happen and tell Messiah the Prince. 69 times seven is 483. So 483 years was to was to take place until the Messiah came. That 483 years is divided into two chunks. It's divided into seven sevens and or 49 years and 62 sevens or 434 years. Okay, we got into the Migo area yet? My eyes glaze over. No. Okay, I should have said everybody bring your calculators. Yeah. Okay, so the first 49 years, Tim would have. Yeah. The first 49 years was that period of Jerusalem's rebuilding that's chronicled by Nehemiah, and basically from 444 BC to about 396 BC. Yeah, you know, rebuilding the wall took place fairly quickly, but then they had to clear away debris, and it says with plazas, and those are open areas next to the wall, and uh, and also the moat digging the moat and everything else because Jerusalem was a mess. So there were basically 49 years getting it back in order to where it was a thriving city again. Um, The 434 years then, the 62 sevens, follow right after that first 49 years. Now, how long are these years? Well, Jewish calendars are different than our calendars. They're they're, uh, lunar calendars instead of solar calendars. Uh, We know that because, um, let's see, I forgot the exact multiple. Five would be 1,800 days. Yeah, the five, the three, okay, I'm trying to remember. Back in Genesis, I think it was five months. There's a reference in Genesis. Five months was 150 days, so the 30-day months and 12 30 day months is 360. Uh, Daniel in Daniel 12 talks about the last half of the last seven-year period as be, uh, plus one month as being uh, 1290 days. John confirms this in Revelation when he talks about the, the last half of the tribulation, three and a half years, as being uh, 1260 days. So it figures out then to be a 360-day lunar year. Now, if you have 483 years of 360-day lunar years, that's 173,880 days. 173,880. How many days do you suppose there are from March 5th, 444 BC to March 30th, AD 33? 173,880 exactly. Okay, a couple ways you can figure this. Uh, You know, 1 BC to 1 AD is one year. There is no year zero. I was surprised when I found that out as a new believer. I really thought there was a year zero. Uh, (laughs) But there isn't. So, um, 444 BC to AD 33 is 476 solar years, like we have. 476 times 365 days is 173,740 days. Now, I'm not doing this, this is not speed math, I have notes. Uh, Okay, (laughs) there are 116 days for leap years. Okay, by the way, that's not every four years, because for centuries... Uh, they, I think, don't do it on the ones that are labeled, uh, that are 400-year multiples. I think it's the, the odd century. Yeah, something like that. So there's working out the leap years is actually fairly complicated. But uh, there are 116 days for leap years, and then to go from March, 20, March 4th to March 30th, uh, exclusive of the end, is 24 days. So you put it all together, 173,740 plus 116 plus 24 is 173,880 days. Exactly the time period that Daniel talked about. Another way of looking at that that I like, because it actually this has the, the virtue of simplicity, Since the advent of astronomy, we've figured out that our solar years are pretty close to 365.24219879 days. That's why we have leap years and such, because it's just a little bit more than that. So, if you multiply 476 lunar years... I mean solar year, years, I'm sorry, times 365.24219879 days and add 25 days inclusive for March 4th to March 30th, you also get 173,880 days. So there's a couple of ways you can figure it. Um, that brought them down to the arrival of the Messiah. Now, what happened on that date? I've already tipped my hand in the introduction. That was the day of the triumphal entry. Nisan 10 on the Hebrew calendar, or Sunday, March 30th, AD 33. That was when Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. He fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. You know, Behold, Israel, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on an ass, a colt of, of, of a donkey. Okay? Um, that... Fulfill that prophecy, by the way, when when a king is riding on a donkey, that means it's a time of peace. If he's riding on a horse, it's a time of war. So he came to them in peace. The word translated Messiah here, Mashiach, is just means the anointed one. The messianic prince, if you will. Uh, anointed kings, prophets, uh, priests, all had oil poured on their head to to consecrate them to their, to their job uh, so the Messiah is the anointed one the, uh, the Greek verb is Creo, we get Christos from it from which come Christ so Christ is just Messiah translated um, Hebrew and Greek, same concept the pour oil on the head to consecrate him he's called the prince why? why not king? because he wasn't accepted as king He was rejected by Israel's rulers. And at that point, God's stopwatch stopped. The thumb goes down, click, the stopwatch quit ticking. That had fulfilled the first 69 weeks. Now, what happened then? Well, what happened then is a period of time that I call the Great Parenthesis. It's a gap. I've mentioned this before, that sometimes in prophetic matters, it's as if you have a mountain, a valley between and another mountain, and the prophet sees the mountaintops. He does not see the valley in, that intervenes, just like you wouldn't naturally. So, we have this situation that after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. I think that's, one of the, that's some of the most shocking Words in the Old Testament here's the Messiah they've been looking for for centuries and it says he's going to be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined World War I World War II Korea Vietnam Persian Gulf you know War, war, war. (laughs) I couldn't find the statistic, but somebody has actually calculated how many years in the last 2,000 we've had peace everywhere on the planet. There aren't very many of them. (laughs) It's like, I don't think you can get a decent decade or two out of it. There's always a war going on someplace. But there must be a break then between the 69th and the 70th week because 70th week happens in the next verse. 69th week finished up in the last verse and here we have things happening afterward so that means there's a gap and Daniel wasn't told how big that gap was going to be now we know that it included a couple of things because there are two two notable things that happen here but we don't know how big that parenthesis that gap is so far it's been 2010 years roughly yeah you know, so it's gonna yeah you know, it's a big gap After the 483 years, Messiah will be killed. The city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. That Hebrew word translated cut off is a technical term. It means that person will be cut off by means of a death penalty. Okay, he will be killed. Well, Jesus Christ was crucified Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. Happened after the triumphal entry, just a week. Titus and the Roman legions destroyed the temple in the city of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. So that all happened after, more than seven years after, okay? So we're in a gap. Even if one were not to accept my calculation, even, you know, if you're going, uh, too many numbers, that can't be right, Messiah has to arrive before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay, throw my numbers out. Oh, you started in the wrong place. You calculated wrong. You know, you're just in love with your TI calculator. okay. (laughs) Okay, fine, reject it all. He still has to come before the temple and the city are destroyed. And that happened historically, AD 70. That's why you have passages in the Talmud where they are bewailing the fact that the temple has been destroyed and the Messiah has not yet come. Try, it's really it's really quite poignant it's enough to make you tear up it really is now note that the, it's not the coming prince who destroys the city but it's his people the people of the prince who is to come okay so we got another prince here got one who's going to come in the future but his people are the ones who destroyed the city and the sanctuary who did that? the Romans Therefore, the coming prince, the Antichrist, is going to be what? He's going to be a Roman. He's going to be a Roman of some sort. Okay? That brings us down to the final week in verse 27. And he, who's the antecedent of he? The coming prince. that coming Roman prince will make a covenant with many for one week, for one seven, for seven years. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one that makes desolate until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is the last seven-year period in this 490 years. So it's as if the stopwatch starts clicking again at a certain point. Again, the he, verse 27, has to be that Roman prince who's coming. But when does it start? Does it start again with the rapture? Oftentimes people think this, but actually that's not it, is it? First of all, the rapture, Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, wasn't revealed. So the Old Testament didn't know about that. Okay, But beyond that... That isn't what Daniel tells us. Daniel tells us that it starts when he, the Roman Antichrist, makes a firm covenant with many for one period of seven years. That's what starts the stopwatch going again. So if, as I believe, the church goes poof, it'll go poof right before then, and then at some point shortly thereafter, the Antichrist is going to make a defense covenant with Israel. A defense pact, and he's going to make it for seven years. Okay. Does he keep it? Well, no. Daniel tells us in the middle of the seven years, he's going to turn on Israel. He's going to stop the temple sacrifices, and he's going to desecrate the temple. Now, by the way, for the Antichrist to do this, what has to be done about the temple? It has to be rebuilt. It has to be. Um, it must be rebuilt and sacrifice reinstituted. Okay? Does that happen before or after the church goes poof through the roof? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, it could happen that the Antichrist treaty gives them the ability to rebuild the temple. Right now, it's problematic. There's a mosque setting there. Uh, some have speculated that you can build them side by side. That would take an incredible amount of cooperation. Uh, right now, all Ariel Sharon had to do, you know, years gone by, is just show up on the Temple Mount, and we had a riot. Uh, so I don't know that that would work right now, but you know, who knows how this will shake out exactly? I don't know. But the Temple will will be rebuilt. Sacrifice will be reinstituted. Now, Daniel wrote again about this in in chapters 11 and chapter 12. We'll see it again, where he talks about this abomination that's going to be put up in the temple. Jesus spoke about it Uh, in Matthew 24. he He told his disciples, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Matthew put in the little comment, Let the reader understand because Matthew's probably going, I'm not sure what this is, but if you're reading this and you're in the tribulation, you pay attention, you'll see something. Uh, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Paul predicted that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, would be revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself over every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is not kosher, (laughs) okay? And that is what's going to be an abomination in the temple, the Antichrist setting himself up as being God in the temple. John wrote that the false prophet, the uh, helper of the Antichrist, would perform great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast that's the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it's given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. I don't know whether that's modern technology, animatronics, or uh, or something, but... Um, <laughs> or whether it's something supernatural, but definitely that idolatry of the Antichrist will be part of the second half of the tribulation. But the message is positive still because he will ultimately be completely defeated. John wrote in in Revelation 19, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And then, God's kingdom begins. What a glorious day. know, it's a cliche that it's always darkest before the dawn, but boy, that's true in this one. It really is. Now, how do we apply this? Well, I think prophetically, there's a lot of information for us here, but the thing that strikes me is the incredible accuracy. So I'm convinced if you knew the minute and the second that that decree was signed, you could have predicted the minute and the second of the triumphal entry. You know, it just, the precision is incredible that that prophecy this was no vague quatrain of nostradamus this was no gene dixon looking into a crystal ball and getting it only right about half the time you know this was ah uh, god told daniel and daniel can tell you the day that it's going to happen and it did now prophecies of jesus christ's first coming were fulfilled that literally and that precisely then what about those of his second coming? How dare we spiritualize them and go, oh, that's some vague nebulous thing. No, 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 no. It's going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth to rule. It is going to happen, precisely as God said it will. We know among the things that this tells us, the Antichrist will make a defense pact with Israel that's going to last seven years, allow the temple to be rebuilt he's going to turn against them in the middle of it. We've got this in Revelation also. You can see how Daniel casts light on Revelation and vice versa. Uh, They really go together. And that there will be a desecration of that future temple. But I've read the back of the book and we win. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how do you apply this personally? Well, when you don't understand something, ask God to make it clear to you. That's what Daniel did and God did. And God is eager to answer prayer that's made with the right attitude. Daniel's a beautiful example of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this revelation from your word that ties so many things together. Help us to see with pure hearts and pure eyes your hand in human history. Thank you for guiding that history. Lord, we look to you to illuminate us as to your will. And we pray, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. The church and the bride say to the Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come. In Jesus' name, amen.